0: Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm excited. We have Mark Stevenson. Mark is a London-based British author, businessman, public speaker, futurologist, and occasionally musician and comedian. He is also a fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce. His first book, An Optimist Tour of the Future, was released in 2011. And his second one, We Do Things Differently, came out in January and is about to be released in the U.S., He also co-founded and helps run the London-based League of Pragmatic Optimists. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me on, Brian. It's a pleasure. So I would love to just start. um, The subtitle of your Optimist Tour of the Future is, One Curious Man Sets Out to Answer What's Next? Assuming you are the curious man, so what is next? Uh, It's also interesting because you can take curious in two ways,
1: can't you? Like somebody's interested in new stuff or somebody's just a little bit odd. And uh, I'm probably, <laughs> probably a bit of both. Uh, actually, I, um, I, I don't conclude what's next. Um, I actually say the, the, the question is its own answer. So w- my work, um, whoever I work with, is about getting people to ask, be literate about the questions the future is asking them. And what's next will depend on how we collectively answer those questions. So you know what's next could be a climate change dystopian, highly unequal world, or what's next could be a green power, prosperous, you know, abundant, distributed economy for everybody, and and that uh, you know each is likely. So so what's next is is what we decide to do about it, and that's why I do the work I do, which is trying to educate people about the questions we're being asked and allowing them some levers on answering them for themselves. So
0: you said that's why you do the work that you do. What what do you do?
1: <laughs> well, I guess I'm a professional irritant. Um, I work with governments, corporations, universities, um, helping them become literate about, I say, the questions the future's asking them. So you'll find that most organisations um, have a very narrow view of the world because they're kind of governed by their their particular. Um, you know, uh, marketplace or whatever. And the same with governments and government departments. Uh, so I'll give you an example. I was uh, working with an insurance company recently. They Wanted me to come in and help them. And I, and I just put up a picture of two cars in an accident and said, what happens if one or, or both of these is a driverless car? And the head of insurance went, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you really should be asking yourself that question because that question's coming. And he said, um, Mark, we insure drivers if there aren't any that's a real fucker on the balance sheet <laughs> <laughs> you no know, it's, fu- it's funny but
0: but, but uh, you know i uh i used to work on old cars and uh and they were always junkers when i got them and i had one time i had one parked at the top of the hill and in the middle of the night the, it. The brakes failed evidently, and it rolled downhill and hit another car. So that actually scenario has actually happened.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, and the other thing I said, well, what's your biggest cost? And he said, well, of course, it's claims, and ninety-seven percent or something daft of of claims are because of human error. And it turns out that driverless cars are way safer than uh, than cars with drivers in them. So maybe that's good for him because it reduces claims. My point was, I don't know what he should do. He's the expert in insurance, but my point is that you should be asking yourselves these questions. And like another example from insurance, you know, I was working with the reinsurance industry, the insurers that insure the insurers and I'm going to them, you know, on the one hand, you're being asked to underpin businesses that are insuring coal fired power plants. and On the other hand, you're being asked to insure businesses, you know, businesses that are going to be absolutely decimated by climate risk, you know? Um, So you can't do both. And it's that lack of systems thinking that I suppose I bring to my, my clients, um, uh, and how the food system, the energy system, the governance system, the education system, what's happening in physics, what's happening in arts, arts and culture, what's happening in technology, what's happening in economics, what's happening in politics, how they all interrelate and what questions they ask you. And then what are you going to do about it with the levers you have and the position you're in to make our world more sustainable, equitable, humane, and just? And if you're not doing that, why you get up in the
0: morning and what is the point of view? That's, kind of, that's kind of my business. And And if you had to describe like... When you deal with people, like what? So start with the big question: Are they are they generally speaking, are they optimistic? Are they pessimistic? Or are they are they agnostic on that because they're they're basically just looking at the future from a business standpoint.
1: Well, it's an, that's a really good question. I mean, they're often quite optimistic about their own chances and often pessimistic about everybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ask people, you know, are you optimistic about the future? They'll generally go, yeah, I'm optimistic about the future. And then you go, are you optimistic about the future generally, like for the, the human race or the like, Oh, no, it's terrible. <laughs> and, of course, those two things are incompatible. You know, people are convinced of their ability to prevail against, you know, uh, the odds, but not for, not for everybody else. And so I often get hired by companies who are saying to me, hey, we, you know, we, we want you to help us be more successful in the future. And then I'll point out to them that actually there's some existential threats to their business model that may mean they'll be irrelevant in five years, which they hadn't even thought about. Now, a really good example of this from the past, which is quite famous, is, is what happened at Blockbuster. So Netflix went to Blockbuster, I think, in 2006 and said, look, you should invest in us. You should buy us. We'll be your online distribution arm. And the management of Blockbuster went, I don't know. I think people always want to take a cassette home. But also Blockbuster made you know, a large amount of their profits from late returns. So they weren't likely to sort of embrace downloads because that would cannibalize one of their revenue streams. So one of the things, but, you know, of course, that was very short-sighted of them. And one of the things I say to um, a lot of my clients is, look, taking the future seriously is going to cost some people their jobs. And I'm sorry about that. But not taking the future seriously is going to cost everybody their jobs. So it's kind of your choice. Do you, are your clients
0: continental, British, American, primarily? All over. I mean, I'm under non-disclosure agreements with most of them. Fair enough. But, but my, my, my question, my follow-up is going to be, is there, you know, so there's, of course, a... Um, stereotype that europeans overall are are more pessimistic about the the future and americans are less so is that is that true or is that just one of those those things that you know there's Uh, a grain of truth somewhere but it's it's not really material
1: i think i think there is something in it i think it's because certainly people from the united states are very confident about the the wonderfulness of the united states and how it will prevail um, you know, there's that. There's that very much the the American dream kind of culture. Whereas Europe is a lot, you know, a lot of uh, smaller nations who, you know, up until quite recently, been beating the crap out of each other. So um, mm-hmm. perhaps we are a little bit more circumspect. But yeah, I mean, but it, 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 you know, it's a very
0: slight skewing in one direction or the other. But you know, you, you when when you subtitle your book, what's next? And then you say, the question is the answer, kind of in the Zen fashion. But at some level, you must have an opinion about. Like it could go either way, but it will likely do what? Like, what do you personally think?
1: Well, uh, I don't know. I feel I'm on. I feel like it's 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 really is all up for grabs. I mean, if we carry on the way we're going, it's going to be terrible. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I think it's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, "You know, if we don't change the direction we're going to go, if we don't change the direction we're going, we're going to end up where we're headed." And where we're heading to at the moment is a four-degree world, mass inequality mass unemployment from uh, you know subject we're going to get into a bit later which is you know ai replacing a lot of middle class jobs etc etc that's certainly possible then on the other hand because of the work i do with atlas of the future i'm constantly at the cutting edge finding people doing amazing stuff you also realize there's all sorts of people out there putting different futures on the table that make it eminently possible for us to have a, a, a a humane and just and sustainable world when you realize for instance that we're installing half a million solar panels a day at the moment that you know solar's doubling in capacity every two or three years and it's at a low starting point but but if it carries on like that then we'll be you know we, we'll be you know completely on renewables you know within a generation and 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 that's not just good for the environment even if you don't care about the environment it's really good for the economy because the marginal cost of renewable energy is zero and also the energy price is very, very stable, which is great when you want to invest long term, because one of the problems with the world economy is that oil price keeps going up and down and nobody knows what's going to happen to their economy as a result. I mean, you'll remember, I don't know how old you are, but certainly some of your listeners will remember what happened um, you know, after the Yom Kippur War, where the Arab nations in the protest of America's support for uh, for Israel just upped the oil price by about fivefold. And suddenly you had a 50 50- Mile per hour speed limit. There were states that banned um, Christmas lights because you know it was a frivolous use of energy. There was gas rationing, etc., etc. You know that that's that's a very extreme example of, of what's wrong with relying on fossil fuels, just from an economics perspective, not not even an environmental one. So so there are all sorts of great opportunities out there, and I think we we, we really are on the dividing line at the moment. And and I suppose I've just decided to put my shoulder against fighting for the side of sustainability and humanity and justice and Rather, rather than business as usual. And uh, I, I, I would really say I don't have a view. People call me an optimist because I fight, I suppose, for the optimistic side. But we could lose and we could lose very badly.
0: So there, there are things, of course, you're right, that if, if we don't change direction, you can see what's going to happen. But there are other things that, you know, no force in heaven and earth could stop, like... Um, like the the trend toward automation, the trend toward computerization, the development of artificial intelligence, and those sorts of things, so those are those are those are known things that will happen
1: yeah and, and, and what do you
0: what do you think about let's let's dive into that topic what do you think and so putting aside climate and energy and, and those topics for the moment, just things that will certainly happen in the future that,
1: yeah. that we can now, see I think this is really interesting because we get into the, the the problem with future futurology uh, as uh, as uh, as a profession, and I use that word profession very loosely, um, uh, is that it's associated with prediction and predictions are usually wrong. So, as you say, there are some things you can definitely see happening, and it's therefore very easy to uh, predict what I would call the first order effects of that. Now, a good example when the internet arrives, it's not hard to predict the rise of email, and basically, you've got net- network computers with people sat behind them typing on keyboards. You know, email is not a you know, a massive leap. So, you, so predicting the rise of email, not, not, not a problem. But does anybody predict the invention of social media? Does anybody predict the role of social media in spreading fake news or whatever? You know, you can't. These are second, third order, fourth order effects. So each technology is really not an answer. It's just a question. So certainly if you look at AI, we are looking very much at the automation of lots of jobs that previously would have, we would have thought unautomatable. Uh, as already mentioned, driverless cars, which is, which is you know one example of artificial intelligence. Um, but there's been a great report came out I think uh, last year from the Oxford uh, Martin School, listing you know literally hundreds of middle class jobs that are on the brink of being uh, re- uh, replaced by automation. And well, that's let's, def- let's let's def- actually
0: let me let me put a pin there, because okay. that's not actually what they say. In fact, they go to great pains to say just the opposite. What they say is that 47 percent of things people do in their jobs is potentially automatable. That's why things on their list are things like pharmacist assistants or um, or whatnot. And so all they really say and, and they go, we made no predictions whatsoever about what is going why to happen in that? jobs. Yeah.
1: Why so
0: I so, well, I mean, if if a futurologist does anything, a futurologist looks at the past and says, we, we know human nature is a constant, and we know. We know things that have happened in the past, again and again and again and again and again, and we can we can we can look at that and say, "Oh, okay, that will probably happen again." So we know that for 250 years, 300 years since the Industrial Revolution in the West, unemployment has remained very very narrow in this broad this band of five to 10 percent. Like aside from the Depression, all over the West, it, it has. Even though you've had arguably more disruptive technologies, you've had the electrification of industry, the mechanization of industry, the end of animal, the end of animal uh, power, you know, being the force of locomotion. You had steam go, uh, coal go from generating 5% of energy to 80% of energy in just 20 years. So you had these enormous disrupting things that, that did, to use your exact words, automated jobs that we would have thought were not automatable. And yet we never ever had a hiccup and, and a surge in unemployment from that. So. It, I, wouldn't I, it be incumbent, I, incumbent to, and, and I'll pass the microphone back, wouldn't it be incumbent on, on somebody saying something different is going to happen to really go into a lot of detail about what's different with this?
1: So I absolutely agree with you there. And and I am not worried about um, employment in the long run. Because if you look at what's happened in employment, it's sort of what you would call non-routine things, things that humans are good at that have been hard to automate. and And so a really good example is, uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution, lots of farm laborers. End of the Industrial Revolution, not nearly as many farm laborers. I think 5% of the number because we introduced automation to the farming industry, tractors, etc. Now, you know, far fewer people can uh, farm the same amount of land. And uh, by the same token, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, not so many accountants. By the end of it, stacks of accountants, you know, like, an, you know, like thirty more account- 30 times more accountants. The problem is so we we, are, we usually end up creating these higher value more complex jobs and the problem uh is the transition so in my uh, experience not many farm laborers want to become accountants and even if they did there's no there's no transition route for them so whole families whole swathes of uh, of the populace can get can get blindsided by this change because they're they're not literate about it, or their education system isn't thinking about it in a sensible way. I mean, let's look at driverless technology again. There's 3.5 million truck drivers in the United States. Um, and it's very likely that a, a large chunk of them will not have that job available to them 10 or 15 years from now. And it's not just them. Actually, if you go to the American Trucking Association, they will say that 1 in 15 of the American workforce are somehow related to the trucking industry. And a lot of those jobs will be at threat. Now, other jobs will replace them, but my concern is what happens to the people who are currently truck drivers? What happens to an education system that doesn't tell people that truck drivers won't be existing you know, in such numbers of or 15 years' time? What does the American Trucking Association do? What does the logistics firms that employ those truckers do? I mean, they've all got a responsibility to think about this problem in a systemic way, and they often don't, which is where my work comes in, saying, look, government, you have to think about an education system that's very different, because AI is going to be creating a
0: job market that's entirely different from the one you're currently educating your children into. Fair enough, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody doesn't, I don't think anybody would argue that a, an industrial economy education system is I, I, is is going to, to make workers successful in this world tomorrow, but but that setup that you just gave I think is a, it strikes me as a bit disingenuous, which is to say you know we're losing these these lower. Let's just take truck driving. Although, you know, I think that the facts on the ground are are likely that it will be gradual, yes. um because you've got the, ten ten years to replace all the truckers would be, I mean, and it's going to be gradual. And so fewer people are going to enter the field. People who might retire earlier are going to retire out of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the technology seldom just like quite does it all that quickly but 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 the thing that i think might be different is is that's that's usually what people say is we're going to lose these lower skill jobs and then we're going to make you know jobs for geneticists and and those people who had these lower skill jobs they aren't going to become geneticists and nobody actually ever says that that's what happens what what happens is that the, the, the question is can everybody already do a job a little harder than the one they presently have and so that each person just slightly goes up one, one layer, you know, one notch in the, uh, in, in the food chain, that it doesn't actually require that you, you take truck drivers and, and send them to graduate school for 12 years.
1: <laughs> yeah, in, indeed. And, and, and this is, you know, why having conversations like this is so important, because it is you know, being, as I say, my thing is about making people literate about the questions the future is asking them. And so now we're having, I would imagine, quite a literate conversation about that. And that's really important. It's why podcasts like this is important. It's why the research you do is important. But in my experience, a lot of the people, and particularly in government, they would not even be having this conversation or asking this question. And the same for lots of people in business as well, because they're very focused on a, on a very narrow way of looking at things. So, um,
0: so I think, I think I'm in violent agreement with you. <laughs> uh, no, and I is with you. I'm just trying to dissect it and think through because one could also say that about the electrification of industry, all those things I just listed, nobody said electrification's coming. You know, we need to, I mean, we've always been reactive and luckily change has come at a pace that our, our reactive skills, uh, have been able to, you know, kind of keep up. Do you think this time is different or you're saying there's a better way to do it?
1: I just think it's it's going to be faster this time uh, because uh, and you know I think it's an arguable sort of truism in um, in the world of futurism that that technology waves speed up. Um, you know, if you look, for instance, at um, uh, there's a there's some there's a there's a, some figures I got from the National Intelligence Council, uh, United States National Intelligence Council, and it's a really interesting. It just looked at how long it took. Um, the United States population to adopt certain technologies. So uh, it took 46 years for 25% of the United States population to bring electricity into their homes from its introduction to the market. Uh, it took just seven for the World Wide Web, and there were two and a half times as many citizens there. And that makes sense because each sort of technology provides the platform, the tools to build the next one. You know, you can't have the World Wide Web until you have electricity. And so you see this speeding up because you now have more powerful tools that you've last time to help you build the next one. And they distribute distribute much more quickly as well. So what we have, I think, fundamentally, and this is what my third book is going to be about, is this problem between the speed of change of technology and also the speed of change of thought and philosophy and and, and new ideas about how we might organize ourselves and the speed of our bureaucracies and our governance and our administration, which is still painfully slow. And and it's that that mismatch of those gears that I think causes the most problems uh particularly you know so the education system being a really good example if your education system isn't keeping up with those changes isn't in lockstep with them then inevitably you're going to do a disservice to many of the students going through it
0: so where do you think that goes to because things that that um i mean if if, if 47 years for electricity and seven for the web i mean eventually there's that movie space balls where they they had that <laughs> scene where you know the video actually hits the video store before uh, they finish shooting it. You know, it's, it's at some point there's a, there's an actual physical limit to that, right? You, you don't have a technology that comes out on Thursday and by Friday, half the world's using it. So what does that world look like? Exactly. And and, and all of these things move at slightly
1: different speeds, but, you know, even if you look at what's happening with energy at the moment, you know, which is one of my favorite pet topics, because I think it kind of underpins everything else, you know, the speed at which the, efficiency of solar panels is rising, the speed at which the price of solar is going down, the invention of energy internet technology, uh, based on ideas from, from Bob Metcalf, um, is extraordinary. But I was in the EU Commission a few weeks ago talking to them about their energy policy and looking at it and saying, look, guys, you have a fantastic energy policy for 1994. You know, what's going on here? How come I'm having to tell you about this stuff? Because actually, we should be moving to a decentralized, decarbonized, much more efficient, much cheaper energy system, because that's good for everybody. But you're still writing energy policy as if it was the mid-90s. And that really, you know, worries me. Now, energy is not, be, not going to move as fast as, say, you know, a new social networking application. Uh, because you do have to actually build stuff and stick it in the ground and connect to each other. So yes, but it is still moving way faster than the administration. And that, that is my major concern. And that is you know, the, the, sort of the focus of my work for the next two or three years, is working at how we get those, those two things working at the same speed or at least near enough the same speed so that they, they can usefully talk to each other. Because governance at the moment doesn't talk to technology in any useful way. Uh, data protection law, I was just talking to a lawyer yesterday, and he's saying, I'm in the middle of this data protection case, and I'm dealing with data
0: protection law that was written in 1985. So let's, let's, let's spend one more minute on energy because it's obviously makes the world go round literally. Um, but, uh, and then, and then, um, and my question is, you know, when the promise of nuclear way back was that it would be too cheap to meter and, you know, in theory it could have been, and it didn't work out, right? There were all kinds of things that weren't foreseen and, and whatnot. Do you think that, I mean, energy is arguably the most abundant thing in the universe. So do you think we'll get to a point where it's, too cheap per to meter it's like you know radio waves and it's like the water fountain at the department store that you know, nobody you know makes you put a quarter in it
1: yeah yeah I think I think we will and uh, but I think that comes from a distributed system rather than a centralized one so one of the sort of my pet tropes that I, uh, I sort of trot out quite regularly is this idea that we're, we're moving from economies of scale to economies of distribution so it used to be the most efficient way to do things was to get uh, everything in a centralized place and, and do it all there because it was just cheaper that way given the technology we had at the time. You know whether that was um, schools where we get all the children into a room and sort of teach at them, whether it was power stations where we, you know, dig up a bunch of coal, take it to a big factory called a power station, burn it and then sort of send it out through the wires. Um, even though in your average coal-fired power plant, you would lose 67% of the energy through waste heat, it was still the most efficient way to do things. Um, now we have these technologies that are distributed that even though they might be slightly less efficient or not quite as, uh, cost effective, um, in and of themselves, when you connect them all together and distribute them, you start to see the ability to do things that the centralized system can't. And energy is, I think is a really good example of that. I mean, energy doesn't hit the sun's that, uh, all our energy is derived from the sun and the sun's energy doesn't hit, you know, just power plants it hits the entire planet. And there's that very famous statistic, you know, that there's more energy that hits the Earth's surface in an hour than the human race uses in a year, I think it is. And, and you know, the sun has been waving this massive energy paycheck in our face every second since it started burning. And we haven't been able to bank it very well. So we've been running into the savings account, which is fossil fuels, because that's, you know, sunshine that's been laid down for us very dutifully by Mother Nature for billions of years. and We can dig it up. Thank you very much. Thank you for the savings account. But now we don't need the savings account so much because we can actually bank the stuff as it's coming towards us with, you know, the improving um, uh, renewable technologies that are out there. Couple that with an energy internet, it means you can start to make your energy and your fuel where you are. I'm also an advisor to Richard Branson's Virgin Earth Challenge, which is a $25 million prize for taking carbon out of the atmosphere. You have to be able to do that in an environmentally sustainable way and make a profit while you're doing it. And I have to be very careful and say, this is not the personal, this is not the view of the Virgin earth challenge. It's not the official view, but I am fa- fairly confident that we will, we will award that prize in next three to four years because we've got finalists that are taking carbon directly out of the air and turning it into fuel. And they're doing it at a price point that's competitive with fossil fuels. So if you distribute the production of liquid fuels and electricity, uh, and anybody can do it, that means you as a school can do it, you as a local business can do it. And what you find is when people do take control of their energy system, because they're not so motivated by making a profit, they're not trying to take to cream a profit off, the energy is cheaper, they maintain it better, and they, uh, and, um, well, just everybody's happier. I mean, there's a town in the middle of Texas right now called Georgetown, 65,000 uh, Trump voters, who I would imagine are not that interested about the climate change threat, you know, because the conservatives generally don't seem to think of that as a problem. Um, they're all moving up to renewables because it's just cheaper than using oil, and they're in the middle of Central Texas. So I think we're definitely going in that direction.
0: You know, you, you're entirely right. I mean, I'm going to pull these numbers from my head, and so they they could be off, but it's, it's something like four million exajoules of sunlight comes on the planet every year, and humanity needs 500. That's what we use right now. So it's like four million rain down, and we got to you know we got to figure out how to how to pull 500 of them. How to harvest those economically? Then maybe if the if the if the Virgin Earth Prize works, you know, there's going to be a crisis in the future. There's not enough carbon in the air. You know, they pull well, it all out in a problem.
1: That'd be a nice problem to have because we've already proven to ourselves that we can put carbon in the air. Right, that. Right. So we're good. Right, right.
0: It's not going to be a problem if if we feel it's getting too low. So I, I, let's let's return to um, uh, to artificial intelligence for a moment. I want to I want to throw a, a few things at you. One. Two different views of the world. I'd love to talk about each one by itself. So one of them is that um, that artificial intelligence uh, you know the the time it takes for a computer to learn to do a task um, you know gets shorter and shorter as we learn how to do it better, and that there's some point at which it is possible for that the computer learns to do everything a human can do faster than a human can do it. And it, it would be at that point that this this view that there are literally no jobs or, you know, it could be literally no jobs if we chose that view, that that would, would happen. So whether you think that or not, I'm curious about, but assuming that that is true, what do you think happens?
1: Well, I think we find new kinds of jobs. <laughs> I mean, I really do. I, I, the thing is that, the clue is in the name is artificial intelligence okay um we have planes that's artificial flying we don't fly the same way that birds fly okay we create an entirely artificial way of doing it and the intelligences that will come out of computers will not be the same as human intelligence they might be as intelligent arguably although i'm not i'm not convinced of that yet but there will be very different intelligences in the same way like you know a dog's intelligence is not the same as an ant's intelligence. It's not the same as, you know, my Apple MacBooks' intelligence. If it has an A, it's not the same as human intelligence. So these intelligences will do different things. They will be artificial intelligence and they'll be very, very good at some things, and they'll be very, very bad at other things. And the human intelligence will have certain um, abilities that I don't think a machine will ever be able to, uh, to replicate in the same way that I don't believe, you know, a wasp, is ever gonna be good, as good at me at playing the bass guitar and I'm never gonna be as good at it at flying.
0: So what would be one of those things that you would be dubious that artificial intelligence would be able to do? Uh,
1: I think it is, the, it is the moral questions. It's the actual philosophy of life. What are we here for? Where are we going? Why are we doing it? What's the right thing to do? Uh, what do we value? Um, and also the curiosity. Um, I interviewed Hod Lipson at Cornell and he was very o- occupied with the idea of creating a computer that was curious because I think curiosity is one of those things that sort of defines a human intelligence that, that, that machines I don't think to, to my knowledge really have in any measurable sense. So I think it'd be those kind of very uniquely human things, the, the, the ability to abstract across ideas and ask moral ethical questions and be curious about the world those are things that I, I don't see machines doing uh, very well at the moment at all. And I'm, I'm not convinced I'll do them in the future. But, you know, it's such a rapidly evolving field and I'm not I, not a, a a deep expert in AI. That, you know, I, I'm willing to be
0: proved wrong. So you don't think there'll ever be a book one curious computer sets out to answer what's next? <laughs> do you know what? Uh, I don't,
1: but I really wish there was because I'd love to go on stage and you know, have that panel discussion with that computer. <laughs>
0: So then, let's push. Let's push the scenario one step further, which is, um, I, I would have to say, it's an overwhelming majority of people who work in the AI field believe that we will someday. And interestingly, the the uh, estimates range from five to five hundred years. But we will one day, someday, make a general intelligence, and it begins with the assumption that that we are our brains and our minds are machines, and therefore we can eventually build a mechanical one. So it sounds like you, you do not hold that view.
1: Well, I mean, I know it's, it's a nuanced view. And again, it's interesting to discuss these things. I mean, is consciousness, which is what we're really talking about here, because if you want to build an artificial general intelligence, as they call it, what you're talking about is building a conscious machine. um, That can have the same kind of thoughts and reflections that we associate with our general intelligence. Now, there are two things I would say. The first is, to build a conscious machine, you have to know what consciousness is. And we don't. And we've been arguing about it for 2,000 years. Now, I would also say that some of the most interesting work in that field is happening in AI and particularly in robotics, because in nature there is no consciousness without a body. So it may be that when we say, what is consciousness? It may be, well, actually, consciousness isn't one thing. It's actually eight separate questions we have to answer. And we've worked out what those eight are, and now we can answer them with technology. I think that might be a plausible route and clearly as you point out consciousness must be computable because we are computing it right now in that you know me and you are just well just in inverted commas are you know dna computer code being read uh, and that computer code generating proteins and lipids and all kinds of things to make us work and we're having this conversation as a result of this com- these computer programs that are running in ourselves so clearly consciousness is computable, but I am still very much to be convinced that we have any idea what consciousness really is, or even, even asking the right questions about it.
0: Do you think that if we were, I mean, you know, we're to your point, we're way ahead of ourselves in terms of this is, uh, you know, we're way ahead of our, our, ourselves in one sense, but do you think that in the end if if you really did have a conscious computer that that in some way a conscious machine does that in some way undermine human rights in the sense that we think people have these these rights by virtue of of being conscious and by virtue of being um essentially being able to feel pain
1: yeah. do you think
0: that 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 if all of a sudden you know the refrigerator and, uh, you know, everything in your house also made that claim that, that that we are somehow lessened by it, not that the machines are somehow ennobled by it.
1: Uh, I would hope not. I mean, um, if we, uh, George Church, who runs Harvard Medical School, said to me, he said, you know, if you could show me a conscious machine, um, I wouldn't be frightened by it. I'd be... I'd be emboldened by it. I'd be curious about how that thing works because then I'd be able to understand myself better. And one of the things I think about AI, in, I was asked this recently um, by the people who are making The Handmaiden's Tale, the new, um, uh, oh God, what's the word? Uh, TV series based on the, on the Margaret Atwood book. And they said, "What do you think AI is going to do for humanity?" And I said, "Well, hopefully, in one scenario is it helps us understand ourselves better. Because if we are able to 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 create that machine that is conscious, we will have had to answer the question, what is consciousness?' As I said earlier. And when we've done that, we will have unlocked also some of the great secrets about ourselves, about our own motivations, our emotions, why we fight, what's good for us, what's bad for us, how to handle depression. All that's good. That we might have opened a whole new toolbox on actually understanding ourselves better. So." one interpretation of it is that actually creating an artificial general intelligence is one of the best things that could happen to humanity because it'll help us understand ourselves better, which might help us achieve more and be, you know, better human beings.
0: At the beginning of our chat and you listed a litany of what you saw as the, the big challenges which face our planet. Uh, you mentioned income inequality. Doesn't technology, so absent, um, wide scale redistribution technology in in a sense, promotes that in a way, doesn't it, because it's, you know, Microsoft, um, Google and Facebook between them have generated, made 12 billionaires, right? So Mm -hmm. it's, it's evidently easier to make a billion dollars now, you know, not, not me, but for some people to make billions now than it would have been, say, 20 years ago, or 500 years ago, for that matter. Um, So do you think that technology in and of itself, by multiplying the abilities of people and magnifying it ever more is uh, a root cause of income inequality? Or do you think that it comes from somewhere else?
1: No, I mean, I, I don't think it's, I think what's income inequality comes from the way our capital markets and our, and our, our um, property law works. So if you look at democracy, for instance, uh, there's several pillars to it. You know, if you talk to uh, political philosophers, they say, well, you know, a functioning democracy has several things that, uh, that need to be working. One is you need to have universal suffrage so everybody gets to vote. You need to have free and fair elections. You need to have a free press. You need to have a judiciary that isn't influenced by the government, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And the other thing that, that's mentioned but, but less really talked about is, is working property rights. And Working property rights say you as a citizen have the right to own something, whether that's some property or machinery or an idea and you are allowed to generate an income from that and profit from it. Um, now, that's a great idea, and it's kind of part of entrepreneurship and going and creating something, but the problem is once you have a certain amount of property that you've profited from, you would then have a, 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 a more of a ability to go and buy some of that property of other people. And so what's happened is that property rights, whether intellectual or physical, have concentrated themselves in, in, in fewer and fewer hands because as you get rich, it's easy to buy other stuff. And I know this from my own experience. You know, I used to be a poor musician student. Now I'm doing pretty well. And I found myself today, you know, buying some shares in a, in a company that I thought was going to do really well. and just thinking, and, and they did. I'm thinking, wow, that was easy. It was easy for me now because I have more property rights to acquire more property rights. And that's what we're seeing. And uh, there's a fundamental problem there somewhere and and I'm not quite sure how we deal with it.
0: After the the war, World War II, um, England toyed with incredibly high, sometimes over 100% um, marginal taxes on unearned income. Hmm. And I I think the Beatles uh, figured they needed to leave. (laughs) So what, what what is your take on that? Did that work and is that an experiment you would advocate repeating or or what did what did we learn from that
1: well i think we learned that's a very bad way of doing it um i mean again it comes back to you know how much do things cost because if things are expensive then you need you know and you're running a state you need to collect more taxes uh you know we're having this huge debate in the uk at the moment about the cost of the national health service and uh you know how do you how do you fund that now if we go back to some of our earlier conversation if you suddenly reduce the cost of energy to very little, actually a lot of everything gets cheaper, healthcare, education, building roads, whatever. If you have um, a whole bunch of machines that can do stuff for you cheaper than you used to employ humans to do it, then in one way that's really good because now you can provide again, healthcare, education, road building, whatever, cheaper. So the question is, what do you, how does the job market change now? Where, where do human beings find their value? Do, do we create these higher value jobs? Or you know, one radical idea that's come out at the moment is this idea of the universal basic income where the the state now has enough money coming in because, you know, the cost of energy has gone down and it can build stuff much more cheaply. um, That actually we all just get, you know, a salary anyway from the state to follow
0: our dreams. And and that's one plausible scenario. So moving on, um, I I would love to hear more about the book that's about to come out. Because I've read what I can find online. I don't have a copy of it yet. Um, tell t- why, what brought what made you write we do things differently, and what are you hoping it accomplishes so um, at the end of my first book, which is really an attempt to
1: talk about the cutting edge of technology and what 's happening with the environment you know in an entertaining way for the for the the layman, um, I got to the end of that book and it became very clear to me that we have all the technology uh, we need to solve the world 's grand challenges, whether that 's you know um, the energy price or climate change or, um, uh, uh you know, problems with manufacturing. I mean, we just, you know, we're not short of technology. If we didn't invent another thing from tomorrow, we could deal with all the world's grand challenges. We could distribute wealth better. We could do all those things, but it's not the technology that's the problem. It's the administration. It's the way we organize ourselves. It's the way our systems have been built and have become kind of fossilized in the way they work. And so what I wanted to do with this book was go and look at systems and look at five key human systems, which is uh, energy, healthcare, food, education, and governance, and say, uh, is there a way to do these better? And it wasn't about me saying, here's my idea. It was about me going around the world and finding people who have already done it better and prevailed and saying, okay, what do these people tell us about the future? Do they give us a roadmap to and a window on a future that is better run, uh, more sustainable, um, kinder to everybody, etc. And that's what it is, it's a collection of stories of people who have gone and looked at existing systems, challenged those systems, built something better, and they've succeeded and they've been there for a while, so you can't say it was just like a, a six-month thing, they're, they're actually prevailing. And, and it's those stories in education, healthcare, food, um, uh, energy, and, uh, and governance.
0: You know, I think the saddest fact I know Uh, And and all the litany of, of, you know, things you run across the thing that anytime food comes up that jumps to the front of my mind is that 79%. So there's a billion people more or less 960 something million that are hungry. You can go to um, the UN's website, you can download a spreadsheet, it lists them out by country. Um, The sad truth is that 79% of hungry people in the world live in nations that are net food exporters Mm -hmm. in that that, that, that the food that's made inside of the country can be sold on the world market for more than the, the local people can pay for it. So the, the, the truth in the modern age is not that you starve to death if you have no food, it is that you starve to death if you have no um, money. What do you,
1: yeah. what, was, well,
0: what, did, what did you find?
1: There's an even worse uh, fact I can tell you, which is um, the human race Wastes between thirty and fifty percent of the food it makes depending on where you are in the world before it even reaches the market so it spoils or it rots or it gets wasted or, or damaged b- between the field and the sh- and, and the supermarket shelf and this is particularly prevalent in um, the global south the hotter countries um, and the reason is that, that we simply don't have enough refrigeration we don't have enough cold chains as called so one of the great you know, pillars of civilization, which we kind of take for granted and not really think about, is refrigeration and cooling. Um, in the UK, where I am, 16% of our electricity is spent on cooling stuff. You know, and uh, it's not just food as well, um, it's, the, you know, medical tissues and medicines and all that kind of stuff. So, you and if you look at like sub Saharan Africa, you know, this is just an absolute disaster because the food they're growing, they're not even eating, because it, it ruins too quickly because we don't have a sustainable refrigeration. Uh, system for them to use and one of the things I look at in the book is a new sustainable refrigeration system that looks like it could could solve that problem
0: and you also um, talk about education what 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 do you advocate there what are your thoughts and uh, findings
1: I try not to advocate anything because I think that's generally vainglorious and I'm all about debate and getting to ask the right questions what I will do is I'll say look this person over here seems to have done something pretty extraordinary and what lessons can we draw from them um, so I went to see a school, um, actually in a very, very rough um, housing estate um, in northern England. Uh, this is not, a, you know, an urban paradise. This is a tough neighborhood, lots of violence, drug dealing, etc., 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 you know, low levels of social cohesion. And in the middle of this housing estate was a, a school that had been considered, oh, I think the government co- called it the fifth worst school in the entire of the UK. And they were about to close it. And a guy called Carl turns up as a new headmaster. And two years later, it's considered one of the best schools in the world. Um, And he's done all that without changing any staff. So he took the same staff everybody thought was rubbish. And two years later, they are regarded as some of the best educators in the world. And the way he did that um, is not rocket science. Um, It was really about creating a collaborative learning environment. So one of the things he said was, you know, teachers don't work in teams anymore. They don't watch each other teach. They don't learn about the latest stuff that's happening in education. They don't do that. They kind of become atomized and do their their lessons. So I'm going to get them working as a team. It also said like they'd lost any culture of aspiration about what what they should be doing. So they were just trying to get to the end of the week rather than saying, let's create the the greatest school in the world. So he took some very simple management practices, which is about we're going to aspire to be the best. And we're going to start working together. And we're going to start working with our kids. And he did the same with the kids. Even though they were turning up at this school, four years old, most of them still in nappies, most of them without language, even at four. By the time they were leaving, they were outperforming the national average, you know, from, from this, you know, very rough working class state by also working with the kids in the same way and saying, look, what's your aspiration? Where are we going to, how are we going to design this together collectively as a school, us, the students, you, the students, us, the teachers. And so this is, you know, this is actually good management practice, but he introduced it into a, into a a school environment and it worked very well. And, And, you know, um, you know, I'm vastly trivializing the amount of effort and sweat and emotional uh effort he had to put into that, but uh you know teamwork and also again talking about teamwork rather than splitting the world up into subjects, which is what we tend to do in schools. He was like, well, let's you know pick things that the kids are really interested in, and we'll teach the subjects along the way because then they'll all be interrelated with each other, so you know I walked into a classroom there and it's you know, bedecked out as, uh, you know, NASA headquarters because they picked the theme of space for this term, this particular class. But of course, as they talk about space and astronauts and whatever, they'll learn all the physics, the mass, they'll learn all about the communications and then about history. And um, I said to Carl, I said to, um, a the guy who runs it, I said, well, once they've been given this free environment, how do they feel when the exams come along, which is a very constrained environment? He says, oh, they love it. And I'm like, you're kidding me. He says, no, they can't wait to prove how much they've learned. And it's just, you know, none of this is rocket science, but it's really interesting that that education is one of those places where try and do anything new and somebody's going to try and kill you um, because education is autobiography. Everybody's been through it, and therefore everybody has a very prejudiced view of what it should be like. And so for any change, is always going to upset somebody.
0: So you you made the statement um, that even if we didn't invent any new technology, we know how to solve all of life's greatest challenges. Yeah. I would like to challenge that and say, we actually don't know how to solve the single biggest challenge. Oh, this sounds good. Okay. Death.
1: Death. Well, that's an interesting question, whether you view it as a challenge or not.
0: Well, uh, I think most people, even if they don't want to live, you know, indefinitely, the, the power to choose the moment of your own demise is, is something that, um, that I think, uh, many people would aspire to 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 live the life to live a full life and then and and choose the terms of their own of their own ending but we don't have any idea do you think death is solvable Um, or at least aging aging
1: i think aging is uh, is probably solvable again i'm not uh, a high-ranking scientist area but i know a number um so I was working with the chief scientist at one of our big aging charities recently. And we both now, that if you look at the research that's coming out of places like Stanford and Harvard, um, there's a credible roadmap to, to humans living healthy lives in healthy bodies to 110, 130. Um, Stanford have been reversing human aging in, in certain cell lines, human cell lines since 2014. Um, so uh, I, th- but the problem is of course, It turns out that what's good for helping humans live longer is also often quite good for promoting cancer. And so that's the big conundrum we have at the moment. But um, certainly we are all living longer and healthier anyway. You know, average life expectancy has been rising like, you know, every quarter of a year for every year, I think, you know, for the last hundred years. So technology is clearly doing something in that direction.
0: Um, Well, what it seems to be doing is, is ending premature death, but the number of people, you know, who live, Uh, super centurions 110 and above is 40 and doesn't seem to be going up particularly.
1: Yeah I think think that's true but it's kind of what you call premature death because actually certainly the the, the age at which we die is definitely creeping up and that's because we seem to be handling aging better and if we can keep ourselves a bit younger if we can for instance find a way to lengthen the telomeres in our cells without encouraging cancer that's a really good thing because most of the diseases we you know, end up dying from are the diseases of aging, cardiovascular disease, stroke, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you haven't solved it yet. You ask me what I think it's solvable. Um, like you, I think I'm fairly optimistic about the human race's ability to, to finally ask the right questions and, and then find the answers to them. But I think we still don't really understand aging well enough yet to solve it. But I think we're getting there much faster, I would say, than we are perhaps
0: with than an artificial general intelligence. Um, talk about the um, Atlas of the Future project.
1: Ah, well, the Atlas, I love the Atlas. So the Atlas is uh, base is, is, is kind of the first instantiation of something from the democratizing the future society. So what we're trying to do is trying to say look, if we want the world to uh, progress in a, in a way that's good for everybody, it needs to involve everybody and and therefore you need to be literate about the questions the future is asking you and also not just literate about threats which is what we'll get from the media you know the general media will will just walk in and go it's all going to be terrible everybody's trying to kill you they'll drop that bomb and then just walk away because that gets our attention you know we're trying to say okay yeah, that all those stories are worth paying attention to here's a whole bunch of other stories that are worth paying attention to you know about what we can do with renewables what we can do to improve healthcare, what we can do to improve social cohesion, what we can do to improve happiness—you know, what we can do to improve nations understanding each other, what we can do to reduce, you know, partisan political divides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera—and we collect all that stuff. So it's a huge media project. Where if you go to the Atlas of the Future, you'll just find all these projects of people doing amazing stuff. Some of them very big picture stuff, some bit small picture stuff. And then subsequently, what we're doing with that is we're, we're farming out that content either via TV series, uh, the books I write. There's a podcast by The Future Noughts, which is me and my friend, Ed Gillespie, where we talk about stuff on the Atlas um, and interview people. So it's about a way of creating a culture of the future that's aspirational. because We we kind of feel that at the moment we're being asked to be fearful of the future and and run away in the opposite direction. And we'd like to, to put on the table the idea that the future could be great. And we'd like to run towards that and get involved in making it. And then what was this third book you're working on? The third book is 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 just an idea at the moment, but it is about you know how do we get our administration our government our bureaucracy to move at something like a similar pace to the to the the pace of ideas and uh, technology because it's it seems to me it's that it's that friction that causes so many of the problems you know that we don't move forward fast enough no so then that of time it takes to approve a drug you know is stratospheric and there's some good reasons for that you know i'm not against uh the work the fda does but but when you're looking at you know sometimes 12 or 13 years for drug to reach market that's that's got to be too slow and so we have to think about ways to get those two parts of the human experience the technology and the philosophy and the bureaucracy working at roughly the same clock speed then i think things will go be better for everybody and that's the idea i want to explore in the next book how we go about doing that some of that I think will be blockchain technology. Some of it might be the use of virtual reality, and a whole bunch of other stuff I probably haven't found out yet. So I'm, I'm really just asking that question. So if any of your listeners have any ideas about, you know, what what are some of the technologies or approaches or philosophies that will help us solve that, I'd love
0: to hear from them. And then you mentioned a TV program earlier. What what do you? In 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 views of the future, science fiction movies, TV, books, all of that. What do you read or watch that you think, "Ha, huh, that could happen." That that is a, a possible outcome. Like, what do you think is done really well?
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting that because I I, I have a 16-month-old child, I'm trying to write a book and save the world, so I hardly watch anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, I, I think it's very difficult to. Uh, cite fiction as as the as 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 a good source. It's an inspiration. It's a question, but it never turns out how we imagine. So I take all of those things with a pinch of salt and just enjoy them for what they are. You know, um, uh, I have no idea what the future is going to be like, but I have an idea that it could be great, and I'd like it to be so. And actually, there is no fiction really like that because if you look at science fiction generally it's dystopian or it's about conflict and there's a very good reason for that which is really entertaining <laughs> you know nobody wants to watch a james cameron movie where the robots do your gardening <laughs> you know that's 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 not, that's not that's not an entertaining watch you know terminator 3 gardening day
0: is is, is nothing anybody's going to the cinema to sleep so you know, um, i i am in i'm in full agreement with that and and you know i authored a book called infinite progress so i'm uh, unlike you i i, I have a, a a very clear idea of what I think the future is going to be like. And I used to really be bothered by dystopian movies, mainly because I'm required to go see them, right? Because everybody's like, oh, did you see Elysium? And, you know, I have to, I have to, you know, do it. So I have to go see and read everything because I'm in that. And it used to bother me until I read a quote, I think, by Frank Herbert, and I apologize if it isn't, and he said, sometimes um, the job of science fiction is to warn you of something that could happen. And yeah. so that you like have your guard up about it. So you're like, ha ha, I'm not going to let that happen. Uh, you know, it kind of lets the cat out of the bag. And, and so I, I was able to kind of switch my view on it yeah. by keeping that in mind, that these are cautionary tales.
1: Yeah, and I think it, you know, we also have to adopt that view with the media, for instance. You know, the media leads on the stuff that's terrifying because, you know, that will get our attention. And, you know, we are programmed as human beings to be cautious first and optimistic second. You know, that makes perfect sense on the African savannah you know, if one of your tribe goes over a hill without checking for, you know, big cats and gets eaten by a big cat, you know, you're pretty cynical about hills from that moment on. You're nervous of them. You take, you approach them carefully. And it's, you know, that that's the way we're kind of programmed to look at the world. But of course, that kind of pessimism doesn't move us forward very much. It keeps us where we are. And even worse than that is the cynicism. And cynicism is, of course, just obedience to the status quo. So, so yeah, I think you can, you can enjoy the entertainment, enjoy the dystopia, enjoy us fighting the robots, all that kind of stuff. One thing you do see about all those movies, though, is that eventually we win. Even if we, even if we are being attacked by aliens or whatever, we usually prevail. So you know, whilst they are dystopian, uh, they there is this yearning amongst us. Say, you know, actually we will prevail. We will get somewhere, and, and uh, maybe it'll be a rocky ride, but but hopefully you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll uh, end up in the sunshine.
0: So. um An Optimist Tour of the Future is still available all over the world. I saw it was in like nine languages, and and you can order that from your local uh, book proprietor. And we do things differently. Is that out in the U.S.? When will that be out in the U.S.? Uh,
1: It's out in the U.S. early next year. We don't have a publication date yet, but um, I am told by my lovely publishers um, that that will be sort of January, February next year.
0: Um, And there's always... um, all right.
1: yeah, you can you can buy the uk edition on amazon.com and various other online stores i'm
0: sure and then um if people want to follow you and follow what you do and and whatnot what's the best way to do that
1: uh, well uh my twitter handle is at optimist on tour you can learn about me at my website which is markstevenson.org and check out the future notes podcast um so um, Thefuturenotes.com is uh, is where we sort of you know, do something not dissimilar to this, uh, although we have more swearing and nakedness than your podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but also get yourself down to Atlas of the Future. That's I think that would be the central place to go. It's a great uh, it's a great resource for everybody, and that's not just about me. There's a whole bunch of future forward thinking people on that
0: Future Heroes. Uh, we should probably get you on there at some point, Baron. I would be delighted, and 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 I mean, this was an amazing hour. Um, you could, we. There could be a Mark Stevenson show. I mean, it's it's every topic under the sun. You've got um, you've got wonderful insights, and thank you so much for taking the time to share them with us. Bye bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called the AI Minute, and every day it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice, but in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.